the new moon sorry about that there was a there was a, a birthday and a mermaid and a seven-year-old and you know a plane trip and uh so uh yeah didn't didn't uh didn't quite get uh, a show done for you on the new moon uh did a lot of swimming instead um you know I don't normally like to get wet but uh you know sometimes I make an exception uh anyway I hope your summers are full and shiny like the moon and uh, I hope you enjoy today's show. Uh, I am very excited to be reading to you from Sudha Balagopal's beautiful novella in Flash from Ad Hoc Fiction, Things I Can't Tell Emma. Things I Can't Tell Emma. March 27th, 1981. I twist the curly wire connecting the rotary phone's receiver to its base. My first call to India from 9,000 miles away. Amma will say, this call must be costly. Write letters except when there's news. She'll ask if I'm eating and sleeping. Then, as an inveterate matchmaker, she'll push the eminently suitable Mrs. Pye's son in California. There are things you can tell your mother and there are things you can't. I can tell Emma that the traffic in America is orderly and quiet, that I open a bank account and get my phone connection in one day, that I can use an amazing new device, the automated teller machine, to withdraw money instead of going to the bank. I can't tell her that my flight arrives late, that I take a cab from the airport at 11 p.m., that the apartment office is closed, leaving me no place to go. That Theo, a young American wearing metal-rimmed glasses and what she would consider inappropriate faded denim shorts, offers to let me stay with him. That I sit outside the office all night. That I watch male students in togas, fake Greeks in white sheets tied around their shoulders, cavort to loud music across the street. That I wait there until morning, when people walk past me, as if a travel-worn Indian woman settled on her suitcases is an everyday occurrence. Until Theo with the metal room glasses hands me a mug of lukewarm black coffee and asks if I'd like to freshen up. That he says, I don't have a gun, I promise, with a sparkly smile. Or that I run my tongue over slimy teeth. March 29, 1981. My apartment is next to Theo's. With an ear against the wall, I listen to his television. His dishes clatter over the sound of canned laughter. I calculate the hours. Breakfast in India. Time for hot idlis with chutney or peanut-laden avalutma. When I dial home, the phone rings and rings. Amal asks why I haven't called Mrs. Pye's son, 
then contradict herself, ask why I'm wasting dollars. It's always easier to lie. I prepare to say, his phone must be out of order. I organize my information. I can tell Emma that the grocery stores here are massive, that I can get everything except Indian spices, that I crave her cooking, that I can hear the radio over invisible speakers in the stores, that the phone company's advertisement asks us to reach out and touch someone, that it seems like such a nice thing to do, that my studio apartment is tiny and spare, a twin bed, desk, chair, that my department is half a mile away, that I've been clocking the walk there so I can get to class on time, that I bought myself a plasticky jacket because it's cold here in March, that I have to train my ears to understand American English, that I'm confused about the spellings here, that tomorrow is the first day of the quarter, first day of class. I can't tell her that Theo sees me walking to the grocery store, that he offers me a lift in his car, chipped blue paint and noisy, that the woman on his car radio sings, call me, that he laughs, sparkling again, and says, hop in, that I decline and end up trudging back with heavy grocery bags draped on either arm. March 30th, 1981. I ring home for the third time in four days. The phone does not connect. While I try again, I decide if she answers, I'll preempt Emma and say, Mrs. Pye's son doesn't answer his phone. I can then tell Emma about Dr. E in communications class, that his annihilation sounds like annihilation, that I have lunch at the student union, which is big and loud, that they have loads of unfamiliar foods, potato salad, macaroni and cheese, bagels and cream cheese, that there are many television sets, that giggly girls at my table watch a show called General Hospital, that a blanket of silence drops when the television screen changes to breaking news, when newscasters announce someone shot the president of the country. And that, I can announce, is the big shocking news. I can't tell her that Theo's in the student union, that he slides in next to me, that he drinks cola and squeezes a yellow condiment into his many-layered sandwich, that he catches me staring at his frayed backpack, ready to snap with the weight of its contents, that he grins and starts to unzip his backpack, and at that moment they tell us a gunman shot President Reagan, that Theo reaches for my hand, that I gulp and gulp, that the giggly girls are silent for two minutes before they start talking about General Hospital again. Nor can I tell Emma that the phone company's jingle repeats in my mind and repeats and repeats, that there's an echoey silence at the other end of the line, that I understand the Indian telephone company must have disconnected her line because of an unpaid bill, that I must accept she is more miles away than I can count, that I want to tell her everything.
that was Seagulls, March 3rd, 2021. Quail with a top knot. There's a bird in the library, I tell the librarian. The university employee has thin, penciled brows and a nest of brown hair. I place the encyclopedia on her desk. With an unsteady hand, I show her the wet splatter of bird dropping, an irregular stain on the information about polling methods. I need this material for class. Maybe where you're from, birds come into libraries, not in Arizona. Her red-tipped finger indicates the closed windows of the air-conditioned building. I want to tell her, in Calcutta, I paid a membership fee to read books about America, that the owner of the corner library kept his windows open, that a Mina family lived in the nook above the front door, that he fed them tiny pieces of mango and guava that they didn't come in. He also fined me if I damaged a book. She moves the offending encyclopedia away from herself with one finger, studies my embroidered orange kurta, the color of the robes worn by the Hare Krishnas, singing an unrecognizable Hindi on the lawn outside. At home when they roamed Park Street, Uma told me to keep a safe distance. I spot Theo in the library. He doesn't walk up to the counter to say hello or tell the librarian that I'm a friend. What am I supposed to do? I ask. Have you looked through the card catalog, microfiche reader? I ask her for help with the machine. She says she cannot leave her desk. It's a little quail with a top knot. I imagine telling Theo about this creature which defiles the book, then hops into my backpack like he's home. I share an apartment wall with Theo, against which I lay my ear each evening so I can listen to Dan Rather on television. Sometimes I hear Theo laugh when he watches Three's Company. Sometimes I hear him on the phone, low and intimate. Sometimes I hear him pop a cassette into his player. Sometimes endless love and celebration seep into my apartment. This is the man who calls himself an eternal student. He's going for his fourth degree. The man who offered me coffee, a ride to the store. A bit of excrement lands on my shirt because I cannot look away as Theo kisses a girl on the aisle between library stacks. Because I'm drawn to his muscled arms on either side of her as she rests against books. Because I'm staring at the girl with big hair, tan legs, short shorts, and cork-heeled shoes. Because I'm wondering how it feels to be kissed like that. This bird made a mess on my research for the paper on polling methods, I tell Dr. E. during office hours. The professor wears a blue and maroon check jacket. The crease of his khaki pants is as sharp as an envelope slitter. His pink tongue darts out, moistening his lips. When he palms my lower back, I freeze. He refused to accept my last assignment because it was handwritten, even though I'm a foreign student who doesn't own a typewriter. I received a zero, my first quarter at the university off to a bad start. That's a better excuse than my dog ate the homework, he says. My umma says only goats eat paper. As I leave Dr. E's office, the department secretary hands me a message slip. You had a call from a Mrs. Pye's son? numbers here. Do you live by a hen house? Mrs. Pye's son says on the phone. The quail squawks louder on my lap. He's my bird, I say, stressing the possessive. Mrs. Pye's son is the man Amma set me up with. She can't understand why I won't accept her highly suitable choices, three so far. 
Can't understand why marriage and a degree won't happen simultaneously. I don't ask how Mrs. Pye's son tracked me down. Maybe I should admire his initiative. Maybe Alma knows best. Maybe he'll kiss me like Theo kissed that girl between the stacks. Noisy bird, Mrs. Pye's son says. Can you get him to shut up? I put the animal on the floor, cover him with my laundry basket. Mrs. Pye's son says he'd like to see my photograph. I tell him I'm behind on my paper. He doesn't offer to mail me his picture. Instead, he talks at length about his job at a chip-making company in California. Not the kind you eat, he <laughs> I drop bits of apple through the holes in my upside-down laundry basket. Inside the makeshift cage, my bird beats his wings, screaks. Maybe Theo has an ear against his wall. Maybe he's listening to the bird's shrill sounds, this conversation. Maybe he'll pop over, ask to hold him. I'm going to India on vacation, Mrs. Pye's son says. My mother wants a Walkman. I told her I don't have time to go shopping. The bird's frantic. Mrs. Pye's son is still talking when I hang up. I lift the laundry basket, cradle my quail, caress his restless wings. Pine Needles The Missing Eye You're late. Gladys, the typist, examines my scrawny handwriting. She licks an ink-stained index finger, flips through the pages. It'll be $24 for 12 pages, $6 extra for the rush job. Theo, my neighbor, referred Gladys. He didn't say she was expensive. Gladys wears thick glasses eyes hidden behind their unkind density. A desk crowds the tight room. I'm wedged into a chair, satchel on my lap. Stacks of papers overwhelm her table. She takes a sip from a large mug. Please wait while I look this over, she says. I may need clarifications. Her voice is raspy, as if she has laryngitis. The stench of stale coffee hovers. I want to tell her many things. I cannot afford $30. My fingers hurt from writing all day. The professor expects a typed paper. I'll have to drop the class if I receive another zero. International students must maintain the requisite credits. I don't want to return to Calcutta, a failure. 
Instead, while she reads, I stare at the typewriters that sit on sturdy shelves. The gray Remington reminds me of unpleasant typing lessons with the corpulent Mr. Dutta back home. The cloying odor of his hair oil filled my nostrils as he leaned his considerable torso over my table. Every 15 minutes he came by to remind me, A-S-D-F-G-H. Or, he said, QWERTY. Remember, QWERTY. I didn't complete the course. My college application declares a falsified typing speed of 30 words per minute. The machines on Gladys's shelves are arranged alphabetically, the green Olivetti between a sleek Corona and a sturdy Remington. I wonder if Theo owns any of these brands. His machine makes comforting clickety-clacks, interrupted by the rough furs of the carriage return. When I place my ear against the wall separating his apartment from mine, I learn things about him. When he eats, when he wakes, when he's on the phone. A scrap of paper taped on the Olivetti reads, For sale. Gladys encircles phrases, flings the sheets toward me. What are these words? Write them out in capital letters. I have six more papers due this quarter. How much for that typewriter? I like green things. Green grass, green parakeets, green mangoes. Gladys drops her pen, clicks her tongue. It sounds like annoyance. Fifty dollars if I type this paper for you, if not sixty. I write her a check for sixty dollars. The taillights of the bus disappear into the hush of dusk as I arrive at the bus stop. I sit on the edge of the sun-heated, graffiti-stained bench for thirty minutes. Soon, a dust-laden wind rises, whistles through my hair, an impending Arizona monsoon storm. I walk the two miles home. Gladys didn't give me a case for the machine. A spritz of rain dampens my hair. Some drops land on the typewriter keys. It's 8.30 p.m. when I walk into my building. A party's in full swing in the recreation room. Strains of funky town battle the din. Never mind, it's a Tuesday night. The banner on the wall outside the room reads, Congratulations, Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer, 729-1981. No one else seems to have a paper due. My quail shrieks as I enter the apartment. I pick him up, caress his wings. When he quiets, I put him back into his makeshift cage. Theo's television is silent. Maybe we'll hit our staccato keys in synchrony tonight. He and I held hands once when we heard President Reagan was shot. I place an ear against the wall, hear muffled voices, one male, one female. Occasional words waft. Warm today. Would you? I'm certain she's willowy with carefully tousled hair, a hint of moist color on velvet lips. All night I type. All night, between the metallic clacks and kerchunks, my ears trained for noises from next door. All night, my bird is still, confused by the activity, the bright lights. I reread the paper with gritty eyes. Dr. E., my professor, will give me a zero. As soon as it's daylight, I call Gladys. The phone rings and rings. I imagine she needs her glasses to answer. It's early, she rasps. What do you need? The typewriter's eye is broken. I mean, the letter I doesn't show up on paper. She clicks her tongue. It sounds like annoyance. 
Just write the damned eye in. She hangs up. Thea didn't tell me she could be rude. On the other side of the wall, his television's tuned to Good Morning America. I pick up my pen. Typewriter 2. What's his name? Hi, 211. You have a problem with your stove? Alan, the super, addresses tenants by their apartment numbers. Sorry I couldn't come sooner. Had classes all week. He steps in, boombox atop a shoulder. The two-in-one radio cassette player has 15 shiny buttons and is larger than his toolkit. What's that? He tilts his head towards my upside-down laundry basket. What's what? I lift my shoulders. Your basket is squawking. His wide-legged stance is at odds with the cheerful Hawaiian shirt he's wearing. No pets allowed. It's in the lease, the twenty-something says with the authority of his position. My defiant quail screeches. I lift the basket, gather the creature. See, he's small and no trouble. My neighbor hasn't complained about noises. Alan rests his hands on his hips. Look, you get rid of what's-his-name, and I won't say a word. I smooth the bird's feathers with my fingers. Alan waits. Cradling the quail in one hand, I grab my backpack. Behind me, I hear Alan sing with the jingle on his radio. Outside, I insert the bird into my partially zippered bag. Alan called my bird, what's-his-name? I vacillate between Moti and Chotu and have pondered American names like Bobby, what's-his-name bobs his head a lot, and a generic Sam. Mostly I call him Dear. That's how my maternal grandmother addressed my grandfather. She never uttered his name in the 50 years of their marriage. I believed it was the prevailing custom until she told me, when someone is a part of your soul, you don't need to call them by name. I hunt for a nook to hide the bird. The machines in the laundry room churn and tumble. The rec room is locked, and the janitor is in his closet. Theo's car is in his usual spot in the parking lot, distinctive with its chipped blue paint and the partially open window that doesn't roll all the way up. Surely he wouldn't mind. I squeeze my arm in through the gap, unlock the car. When the bag lands on the back seat, the surprised bird screaks. Good job, 211, you got rid of the bird, Alan says when he sees me. He doesn't mention the missing backpack. Try these knobs. 
I wave a hand over the warming electric coils on the stove. Thanks. He steps closer. Sorry about the bird. How about you and I go see Raiders of the Lost Ark? He places a hand on my arm. I stare at his black knuckle hairs. You're going to like us, TWA, Alan sings as he lifts the player, places it on his shoulder. I clatter down the stairs. Theo's car hasn't budged. I pause to catch two breaths, peek through the window. The backpack has moved. A pair of sunglasses hangs from the visor. An empty soda bottle leans in the cup holder. No bird anywhere. I look under the seats and the pockets of the door and the glove box. No bird. I sink on the cracked pavement by the car, watch a line of ants carry remnants of a dead fly. The sun sets. It's Saturday night. At the frat house across the street, they're ready for a toga party. Theo's television is silent. Tonight, I can't abide the thought of make-believe laughter for company while I fail at homework. I doze, wake at midnight, turn the lights on. No quail. This morning, the weatherman on Theo's television predicts a cooling trend. Alan wants to see Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not sure I do. I'm making coffee, one spoon instant coffee, two spoons sugar, half a cup of milk, when I hear a scratchy scraping from the window box outside. A quail sits in the now-empty container in which my predecessor must have planted flowers. My soul tells me he's dear Moti Chotu Bobby Sam. I cut up an apple, drop in the bits. The quail takes a piece of fruit, flies to the top of a mesquite tree and onto the rooftop of the building opposite. Other birds join him. Dear Moti Chotu Bobby Sam blends into the flock. Feather on wood. The kiss on my list. I wear the emerald green kurta to the not-so-surprise party Alan throws for my birthday because Emma mouthed the shirt all the way from India, because she spent her hard-saved money on a phone call just to hear my voice, because I miss her treats of roshagolas and cutlets, because memories cause a whoosh of homesickness to swoop through my belly. I'm saturated with emotion, sodden like the condensed, milk-laden tres leches cake on the table, because I'm half a world away from home, because I'm drowning in the frothy affection of people I've known a scant five months, because I feel untethered like the neon-colored balloons bumping up against the ceiling, because I imbibe alcohol for the first time, wine and cheap champagne. My eyes burn and threaten to spill because the gifts of cookies, flowers, and books overwhelm, because I listen to someone sing about a queen of hearts, because I convince myself I can dance, because I tipsy-twirl until my insides spin, because Alan places a sparkly tiara on my head, 
because my neighbor has a casual arm across a girl's shoulders, because I envy that closeness. Of course, a kiss is on my list, along with a visit to the Grand Canyon, whale-watching, inner-tubing, and graduating early, because at 22, it's something I yearn to experience, because a tender, lip-touching, breath-exchanging kiss would make for a swoon-inducing, head-swirling moment. So I believed. Until Alan holds me vice-tight, because he won't let go, because he ruptures my lower lip, because he rips my emerald green top, because he leaves the fabric in tatters, because I must push hard, because I must shout, I said no. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions, please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Pumpkin pie, 8.30 a.m. I ate pumpkin pie for breakfast. Sarah, the department secretary, brought me a generous wedge yesterday. It's not Thanksgiving without this dessert, she said. The pie is sharp sweet with a whiff of cinnamon, a hint of nutmeg, and the tang of ginger. Quite the opposite of Uma's pumpkin curry with onion, garlic, and tomatoes, or her pepper-infused pumpkin doll. I'm chasing the dessert with sips of coffee. One spoon instant coffee, two spoons sugar, half a cup of milk, when the phone rings. This morning there are no ambient sounds, not even Theo's television from next door to dampen the harsh ring. Shanta here, the lady on the phone says, I'm your mother's friend. The voice on the other end crackles with static. Yes? I sift through reasons for this call from India. When she opens the next sentence with, don't worry, but... The pie churns in my stomach. I was visiting your mother this afternoon when she had chest pains. I took her to Bellevue Hospital. Hello? She says when I don't respond. I'll come, I say. It'll take a couple of days. Tell her I'm coming. She thought you might call home and wonder where she is. I'll give you the hospital's number. Ring her tomorrow. I thank the lady, check my $5 wristwatch. It's 9.30 p.m. in India. Eight long hours before I can talk to Uma. Mid-morning. I fling the remnants of the pie into the trash can, pour my coffee down the drain. There's no reason to obey my mother's friend. After several redirects, I reach a kind-hearted night nurse at the hospital, who tells me Emma's stable and asleep. The international call lasts half an hour. I refuse to think about the cost. Emma taught me families are about love. I open my fridge, stare at the void. The only item that remains is a near-empty quart of milk. I daren't go to the store in case I miss a call. 3 p.m. I look out through the kitchen window. Theo's car is missing from his spot in the vacant parking lot. Like everyone else, he's probably spending Thanksgiving at home, surrounded by the buzz of conversation, the lilt of music, the clank of dishes, the sounds of a family gathering. The outside window box contains shriveled bits of apple I've put in hoping for my pet quail's return. I glance at my watch. Too early to call Alma. 5.30 p.m. 
The calls fail the first two times I call the hospital. The third time, the operator leaves me in a chill of silence for ten minutes before she connects me. Hello, Alma says. I relax my tight hold on the receiver. Her voice conveys tentative, but even. Oh, Alma, nurse tells me you called at night. Why are you wasting money on international calls? Her chiding makes me smile. I was worried. That was just a scare. Shanta, Mrs. Pye, will take me home this morning. Don't worry. I'm coming, I say. Nonsense. You stay where you are and study for your finals next week. Focus on the projects you must complete. But you're alone, Emma. She pauses, says, So are you. Later, I replay the conversation in my mind, absorb the friend's name, Mrs. Pye. 9.30 p.m. When I call again, a nurse informs me Alma's been released. My wobbly knees remind me I haven't eaten since the morning. Next door, I hear Theo's television lending the first semblance of normalcy to my day. Someone knocks on the door. Brought you leftovers. Theo's smile sparkles. I rub the back of my hand against my mouth, swallow. Hey, what's wrong? He places the box on the table, opens his arms. I rest my cheek against the warmth of his shirt, inhale his scent. He holds and holds. It is necessary to recognize that color deceives the sun glaring white in daytime, and one can be sure that all these reds in will the same be very way, different. Tea will look lighter the nomenclature of color is most inadequate. The water of so a long as we pool hear merely single tones, will look we do not hear music. Blue. Often, under the same Our conditions, it is the interaction of color and not by That others. is, seeing what happens between Sense colors. Eye for color Our concern is the concern. interaction of color. It is that necessary is, seeing what happens between colors. Our concern is the interaction of color. That is, seeing very what happens from beige to yellow colors. to orange and from a lemon to brown yellow to deep and an violet. orange is like its name. A lemon is yellow and an orange is, is like its name. It is necessary to recognize that color deceives continually. That was Interaction of Color. Mirror Ornament Mrs. Pye's son tells me his mother wants him to marry an Indian girl. Girls from our culture are adjustable, not like Western girls, he says. A limp, puppet-like doll hangs from the rearview mirror in his car. The ornament's legs and arms are entwined in the string. I reach forward to disentangle the limbs, change my mind, sit back. Under the odor of his aftershave lurks a new car smell. A blue beach towel's draped on the passenger seat. The nubby fabric itches through my shirt. Take the man I bought this car from, he says. Just last month, he got this 1982 model for his wife, thinking she'd be pleased. Now she's filed for divorce, so she hates the car and wants the cash instead. Bah, these Western girls. He strikes the doll in the mirror. She swings agitatedly. I've named her Sunny. <laughs> the car, I mean. 
the vehicles a puke yellow. I wonder if the husband also bought the ornament that droops from the mirror, if the woman looks like the doll. Thin arms, thin legs, blobby nose, sad little red button mouth. Whether she felt tied up. Mrs. Pye's son has a receding hairline and a bulging forehead. He's wearing a sweater in colors that burn my retina, sheeny purple and neon green. I tell him nothing's open on Christmas Day except a cafe that serves 24-hour breakfast. I rub my throat to ease the squeeze of betrayal. It's our place, mine and Theo's. He parks Sunny far from other vehicles, as if she's too superior to hobnob with regular cars. Before he gets out of the automobile, he straightens the beach towels on the seats. Outside, he uses his handkerchief to wipe the car's hood, touches his lips to the car's nose. Mrs. Pye's son says, Gentle with the door, Sonny doesn't like to be slammed. He orders a hard-boiled egg, one slice of toast, and a decaf to which he adds three sugars. When he slices into the egg, the gooey yellow streams onto his plate. He commands the waitress to get him a replacement. He says, these girls are stupid. While waiting for his egg, he lathers his toast with butter and grape jelly, tells me he gets the best deals. Like the car, I ask, as I pay for the meal from my meager college student earnings. He drives me back to my apartment. Do you like my vehicle, he asks, striking the doll hanging from the rearview mirror. I want to tell him the towel itches my back. Yes, it's nice, I say. He places a rough hand on my upper arm, pulls, then smites a moist kiss on my ear. I rub the back of my hand against my ear before reaching for the doll. I yank her off the mirror's stem. Cradling her against my chest, I step out of the car. That was Thunder and Rain. Miss Mousy, I'm okay. I just, I'm a little bit frazzled, I guess. And I don't know, you know, I, I missed the new moon. Uh, didn't get a show done. Didn't get to see you. Uh, and now it's the full moon. Well, it was the full moon last night and it's already tonight. And before you know it, it'll be tomorrow. And uh, I don't know, sometimes it just, just seems like, what's the point? Um, I don't, Mr. Bear, I, I know what you mean. I mean... Sometimes I think, who wants to hear from a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent studying herbalism anyway? But let's just take a deep breath. Let it out. Another one. Okay, don't underestimate the power of breathing. It can really help when you're stressed out. Um, I'm reading a book right now. Breath by James Nestor. Fascinating stuff. Uh, but anyway, oh, yeah, I'm reading that too. Very interesting. 
Yeah, isn't it? Oh, I should have I should have thought to do some breathing. You know, sometimes we just need a, re- a reminder, you know, to uh, to breathe a little deeper. Or uh, sometimes you just need to hug a tree or uh, smell a flower or, you know, go meditate on the veins in a leaf. Um, I find that helps me feel better. But anyway, I'm just glad you're here now. And it's okay if you miss the new moon or you're late for the full moon. Uh, nobody's going to mind. And, you know, really, Mr. Bear, if you think about it, the moon is only full for like a split second. And then she's on her way to being unfull again. And the same thing at the new moon. It's only, you know, she's only completely disappeared for like a second. And then, you know, she's back on her way to being full again, and just waxing and waning, waxing and waning. You know this, right? Yeah, I guess when you put it that way. I mean, you can't really do anything on the full moon, like at the full moon, specifically that point in time, because it's just gone like that. So, um, but the moon still looks full, you know, and it still looks full for a few days, pretty much. So, you know, close enough. That's what I say. Um, and, uh, oh, thanks. Thanks, Miss Mousie. You really know how to make a bear feel better. Yeah, well, I'm also going to make you a nice cup of linden tea. Linden is great for soothing frazzled nerves and really nourishes the heart. And it's just really wonderful. And I'm going to put a little skull cap in there too, kind of help relax and uh, maybe chill out some of those uh, repetitive thoughts you're having. Um, well, you know me so well, Miss Mousy. Yeah, so we'll do linden and skull cap, and I'll put a little bit of rose infused honey in there. Uh, you know, I know you like your honey. And rose has such a nice softening and uh, protective uh, power for the heart. Oh, uh, Miss Mousy, that sounds wonderful. Um, can we uh, bring the tea outside and sit and look at the moon together? That's a great idea, Mr. Bear. Um, I'd love to go look at the moon with you. And we can see if there's any fireflies out there and listen to the crickets or... Oh, yeah, some, something's really noisy out there. Um, you know, but good noisy, that, you know, summer night noisy. Yeah, summer night noisy. It's um, it's a beautiful sound, isn't it? Well, I'm feeling better already, Miss Mousy. Yeah, I think the other thing, Mr. Bear, is really you need a good night's sleep. So after we have our tea and look at the moon, I think you need to go get a good night's sleep because I know that you did not sleep much this weekend because you were so excited about the National Capital Puppetry Guild Festival. You're right, Miss Mousy. I always binging on puppet workshops and performances and potpourries and slams and always just, it was so much fun. I know, I was really excited too, and I know it's hard to sleep with all of all of that puppetry going on. And you should tell your listeners if there's anybody interested in puppetry at all, uh, they should check out National Capital Puppetry Guild. They're at nationalcapitalpuppetry.org. And they are just terrific, as you know. Um, 
Mr. Bear, um, I was just looking up Lyndon in Maud Greaves' A Modern Herbal, and she mentions taking a prolonged bath in an infusion of Lyndon um, for hysteria. Not that I'm saying you're hysterical, but, you know, maybe a soothing Lyndon bath would... Oh, right, I forgot how you feel about baths. Uh, Ixne on the Athbe for Istume Airbe. Um, let me just go get that tea. I'll be right back. Oh, Mr. Bear! Mr. Bear, wake up! Oh, oh, what, what, what time is it? It's morning. You fell asleep. You were very tired last night. Oh, yeah, I was. Oh, that tea was delicious and relaxing. And with the moon and the the buzzing music of the insects, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess it was a, the perfect lullaby. Well, I'm glad you got some rest, um, but you should probably finish the show now, and um, I've got work to do here in the apothecary. Oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be on my way. Uh, thanks so much, Miss Mousie. Um, oh, I didn't mean to overstay my welcome. Uh, oh, no problem, Mr. Bear. And uh, here's, here's a cup of tea for the road. Got some rosemary, lemon balm, mint, uh, hawthorn leaf and flower, and tulsi. Uh, so that should be a nice, refreshing start to your morning. Well, uh, that sounds lovely. Thanks, thanks so much, Miss Mousie. Um, well, uh, you take care, and I'll I'll see you on the new moon. Uh, hopefully I'll be be back on schedule. Sounds good, Mister Bear. Bye. Bazooki. And that's the show. Thanks so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the beautiful work of Sudha Balagopal. Uh, her novella in Flash, Things I Can't Tell Emma, is available from Ad Hoc Fiction. That's adhocfiction.com. And you can find out more about Sudha Balagopal at her website, sudhabalagopal.com that's s-u-d-h-a-b-a-l-a-g-o-p-a-l.com so go check out more of her wonderful writing she has a novel and lots of short stories and of course this novella in flash you just heard the excerpts from and again you can pick up your own copy from ad hoc fiction or your local bookstore or ask your local library to order it 
and uh, enjoy. Thanks again, Suda, for letting me feature your beautiful words. Uh, the music today was Found Sound Experiments by me. If you're a musician who would like to have your work uh, considered for a feature on the show, uh, please email me at violethourmoon at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again for being here. Uh, I'll be back on the new moon and uh, take care. Be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.